Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I'm proud to be a part of the Coffee Class team. On School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. By way of introduction, I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is a part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, which is located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications, the first one, The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, www.shutdownlearner.com. And I am excited tonight to have a wonderful guest a very good friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Gosh, and Dr. Gosh is the director of the MS program in counseling and clinical health psychology and a core faculty member of the PsyD program in clinical psychology. A licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Gosh is board certified by the American Board of Clinical, Child, and Adolescent Psychology and serves as a diplomate examiner for this board. Dr. Gosh received her B.A. in 1987 from Grinnell College and her doctorate in clinical psychology in 1997 from Temple University. Dr. Gosh employs an interactive teaching style seeking to incorporate discussions of theoretical issues with real-world experience to help students master course material. She has taught doctoral courses in behavior therapy, learning theories, practicum, and child and adolescent therapy, among others. She's also a nationally recognized expert on clinical child psychology, anxiety disorders, and cognitive behavioral therapy with youth. So Dr. Gosh is a real heavyweight, and I am proud to have her on our show tonight. So welcome. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> Very great nice. Great to have you. Yes, well, it's great to have you, Liz. So tonight we're, you know, as we talk, you know, with the, the goal of school struggles is to talk in kind of down-to-earth, you know, terms to parents and teachers and anyone else who may be listening about these issues and areas of concern. So tonight the theme is we're focusing in on 
children, you know, we usually focus in on children with ADHD, dyslexia, learning disabilities, and but being such a specialist in anxiety, that's that's kind of you are. That is, that's what we're going to be focusing in on tonight. So, welcome. And my first thought in terms of our discussion is, you know, parents will often come to me about. Well, my child, you know, they're, they're explaining behavior as, and, and they go quickly to the hypothesis that anxiety is the root of the of the problem. And I always kind of sit there on the other side, the desk, go, really? Well, how do we know that? So, what are some of the signs and symptoms that you would look for? Not just in ADHD. Let's talk more generally in children that they may be having problems with anxiety. Well, you're right. Sometimes that's one of the things we often are trying to do when kids come to us is we're trying to find out what do we think is sort of motivating the problems that they're having, what's playing into it. And we often make this distinction between is it anxiety-driven or is it driven by, you know, difficulty controlling their impulses or is it driven by um, maybe wanting things and and trying to get them kind of instrumentally. Um, You know, I think one of the things people often say when kids refuse school, is it, that they're afraid to go to school? Is there something about school they're afraid of? Or is it something that they just don't want to do? And it's not just because yeah. they don't want to do it because they're afraid, but they just don't want to do it and, um, or they're frustrated by it. And that does seem to be a differential that we're often looking at with kids to try to figure out, is this more anxiety? Is this more a child just disliking something? Is it more related to them um, trying to avoid something just because they don't want to do it, but it is something they have to do? Um, and so we're, we're often trying to tease that out. Um, and, and it is important because you're going to do slightly different things based on your conceptualization of what's, what's, what's going on in, in a particular situation. And sometimes both things are going on. Um, so it, it can be kind of hard. Um, so some of the things we might look at, for example, with kids with anxiety problems, and certainly I do want to say first off that there are a number of studies, especially in kids who are getting some kind of treatment, those kids often who have ADHD, it is not unusual for them to also have some anxiety problems as well. So sometimes there's sort of this sense that these kids um, just have problems with, you know, uh, you know, not being able to inhibit their impulses or uh, acting too quickly or doing things, you know, getting themselves in trouble all the time. But they often do also have anxiety as well. And sometimes that goes undiagnosed. People don't realize it um, because they're so focused on kind of the problems that are getting in the way of them in class and things like that. Um, so it is important to kind of be thinking about that. On the other hand, sometimes we have parents who will think, oh, this is anxiety, and as we're teasing it out, we realize, no, it's really just they don't like to do this, and it is more about, say, you helping them motivate them in different ways versus just um, uh, that it's an anxious process that we have to deal with. Um, So some of the things that you said that might um, are kind of some of the things to look out for, um, one of the largest, of course, is avoidance. Um, Kids with anxiety tend to avoid situations that make them anxious. Um, So they might hesitate to speak out in class or they might um, tend to avoid doing homework assignments. Um, They might also tend to have trouble sleeping. They might have restlessness, um, crying, irritability, ruminating, difficulty controlling their worries. They'll have worries over and over again. A lot of times they ask for a lot of reassurance, a lot of reassurance. Am I going to be okay? Are you going to be okay? Are you going to come back? Um, Are they going to laugh at me? A lot of reassurance seeking, um, muscle tension, um, uh, those kinds of things. 
one of the things you might notice about those list of symptoms is some of them you might think, gosh, you know, restlessness, irritability, um, things like that, that also could be symptoms of the ADHD, um, not Mm -hmm. just of anxiety. So, um, and there is an overlap. In fact, some studies that they've done that they've tried to look at how these symptoms kind of co-occur, they do find that these kids do tend to, um, that those three symptoms in particular, um, the restlessness, the irritability, um, and being tense can kind of, co- you know, they happen for both kids, even when they're not anxious. They, they can be symptoms of just kids who are ADHD as well. So um, so that can be a little t- difficult to kind of tease out sometimes, um, differences. How about across the age ranges? Are there differences that you might, let's say, group roughly, you know, early elementary or into early, middle elementary, then into middle school and high school? Are there ways of... Are there different things to look for from your point of view? Yeah, that's an important question because kids are so different at different ages, and um, and it, it does seem to differ. The anxieties that they experience at different ages are also going to be different. So um, there's kind of a myth um, that kids, like younger kids, have a higher level of like animal phobias, but that actually there's some there's, that doesn't seem to always be the case. They, they may have some concern about them, but not to the level of kind of really being a, a problem. Um, so that's a little bit of a myth. Um, that doesn't seem to differentiate younger kids from older kids per se. But what we do see is kids like six to nine years old, um, kind of the younger uh, elementary school kids, those, they're kind of going to tend to be preoccupied with concerns about separation anxiety, separating from caregivers, afraid caregivers are going to be kidnapped or harmed or aren't going to come back to them or that something's going to happen to the child when they're away from their parent. Um, so you might see these kids calling home a lot, texting home a lot, trying to go to the nurse to go home. Uh, they may not separate from a parent in a store or um, not be able to sleep alone at night. Um, those kinds of separation concerns, you're more, you're more likely to see them at that young age, which kind of makes sense when you think about kids that age are starting to be more autonomous but still pretty tied to their parents. Um, and they still can't do a lot of things. They still need help with a lot of things. So it isn't so unusual that you would see those kids kind of having that. Now, those separation anxious concerns, they do, we do still see them. They do continue into the 10 to 13 range, and sometimes even adolescence, but not so much in adolescence usually. Um, then the 10 to 13-year-old kids, you tend to see kind of fears about danger and death, um, and they're starting to understand mortality, and they're starting to kind of worry more about, am I going to get sick? Am I, they have a lot of kids with uh, fears about vomiting at that age and vomit phobias or that they're going to get sick in school or that um, someone's going to kidnap them even more so, not just separation-wise, but just all the time kind of have this fear of pe- breaking in, harm to self, things like that. And then adolescence, you're going to see more, of course, no surprise, uh, concerns about social concerns and performance concerns. So you see more of kind of kids who have, um, you know, concerns about criticism, uh, fears of failure, um, how they're going to be perceived by other people, self-consciousness. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get all these things across different ages. Different kids have specific things that might bother them, so it's not unusual. But um, but that's kind of generally sometimes some trends you might see across different ages where you'll see the fears coming out for those kids. And then, of course, each family's circumstance factors in whether there's been uh, illness or death in the family or some kind of trauma 
I'm sure that those those are variables that that are that you're considering in terms of the diagnostic side of things, correct? Yeah, I mean, we we've had a number of kids come through. Uh, I I'm a supervisor at Temple University Child Anxiety Clinic, um, and also at the Center for Brief Therapy at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. We also have a child and adolescent anxiety clinic, and I'm a supervisor in both sites in Philadelphia and. Um, At those sites, we do see a number of kids whose parents have had some kind of, uh, maybe they're struggling with cancer or some kind of chronic illness or um, they've had some kind of separation um, due to trauma in the family or problems in the family. So you you might see anxiety um, related to those issues. Um, And certainly anxiety tends to run in families, so um, it is more likely that the kids who have anxiety not always, of course, but they will often have, a little more likely than typical, will have a parent who maybe struggles themselves with some anxiety problems. Um, and so maybe through modeling, through also just genetics and, you know, a variety of other ways, um, some of that gets transmitted to the child um, in different ways as well. Because there is a family style, so to speak, right? You could have, uh, you know, in a sense, like you're saying, either a genetic component to this or a, an, uh, an anxious personality style that gets passed down from, from parent to child. Is that, how, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. There's some kind of, there looks like there can, it's more likely. It doesn't mean just because, you know, a parent might have some issues with anxiety doesn't mean their child will or vice versa, but there's an increased likelihood. So it does look like, you know, it's more prevalent. Um, right. You know, if you have a, a child with anxiety, it's much more likely they're going to have one or both parents are going to have some anxiety problems, but not all the time. You know, you certainly, we certainly always, you know, that's, that's the great thing about this work and working with parents and kids is every family, every child is unique. And we're always fine. You know, we'll have the, the child come in who, the parents aren't anxious, the, the other, none of the other kids are anxious, but this child just seems to struggle um, more so. And certainly, you know, given your program in terms of kids with ADHD or learning disabilities, those kids certainly have their struggles, right? They run into walls. They run into pro- things, the situations where they're not being successful or they're not getting positive feedback or they're getting negative feedback from their environment a lot. Um, they're getting frustrated by situations, maybe more so than kids who don't struggle with those issues. And so they're then more likely um, to kind of try, how do you deal with those situations? One way is to, you know, they may start to anticipate them and be afraid that they're going to happen and maybe try to avoid them even more so as a coping and try to cope with them to get away from them. Right, right. So the the, the coping behaviors can they can run the range i would imagine you know from from avoidance to acting out uh all kinds of things you might expect as a result yeah absolutely and when you have kids who maybe experience increased anxiety um avoidance is actually the number one interfering problem for kids with anxiety is that they start their worlds get smaller and smaller because they start trying to avoid anything that would make them anxious. So whether the child has, you know, a learning disability or attentional problems, they still, um, if, if they also have this anxiety component, they may not just avoid because they just don't want to deal with it, but they start to kind of, that's their way of controlling their anxiety is if I don't, have to you know if I don't talk in front of the class if I don't finish this paper if I don't hand it in I won't have to deal with the possibility of getting a poor grade or if I don't talk to these kids I won't have to worry about being rejected and so their worlds become smaller and smaller sometimes as they try to cope um, which makes sense they're just trying to kind of keep the anxiety down um, 
and uh, and trying to avoid having problems. But it actually, in the short term, it helps the anxiety go down. But what we find is in the long term, it then makes it go up um, because then they have more situations and less of a sense of their own ability to cope in a more active resourceful way where they feel, oh, I'm self-competent, I can handle things. Instead, they feel like the only way they can handle things is to avoid them versus handling things by coping with them and actively engaging with them. And so it actually leads to more problems down the line, which is, you know, heartbreaking as a parent as you're watching your child struggle with this, these things. So, so the feelings of terror that I had two minutes before the show started tonight. <laughs> Where I wanted to just crawl into a ball. That's, you know, because of the technical difficulties I was having. That's the same kind of experience that a child has in class, I would imagine. Right. And, you know, kids, are kids. I think, sometimes, um, which I give them credit for this in some ways, some, a lot of kids, that, when it comes to a point where the anxiety is actually causing interference in their lives, sometimes what's happened, sometimes it's just that it's so intense what they experience. But also sometimes what happens is in their environment, They've been afraid of something, and then, of course, as parents or teachers, we try to help them by, oh, well, oh, if you're afraid of that, don't do that, or here, we'll do this to make you feel better so that you don't have to give a talk in front of the class, or you don't have to do this particular homework assignment because it makes you too upset. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't help the child's sense of self-efficacy, the sense that, oh, I can handle things or I can do these things. Um, and it sort of te- and for them, in the short term, when they're just sort of living that situation, it feels like, oh, it's relief. Whew, I don't have to deal with that. My anxiety goes down. And so they'll just keep doing that. And they really often don't try to change that until those avenues are not open to them. And one of the things that we often do in our treatment with these children is to try in a gradual way, in a planned way, collaboratively with them and their, them and their families, we try to kind of work to slowly introduce them to the things that they're anxious about and actually experience a new outcome with them um, and experience them in a different way. Um, they call this e- exposure work. In, in, they call it in vivo or imaginal exposures where if a child is afraid of giving a talk in front of people, for example, or afraid of um, the technical difficulties in the show, then what we might have them do is kind of work with us to actually engage in that so that their anxiety goes up, but then have taught them and work with them so that the experience is different. They have different coping skills that will ha- prompt them to implement, will reward them for doing different things. And so they're still anxious, but they do it. And then that changes their sense of their ability to cope. And in the long run, that decreases their anxiety about having to cope with these situations. Do these generalize to other situations? Do they start to feel a sense of competence in other realms? So let's say you mentioned, let's say, public speaking, but then would that, would that treatment also carry over to other aspects of functioning, like taking a test or uh, meeting friends in a social situation where they're uncomfortable? Yeah, sometimes that really depends on the child. Um, some kids will. Um, I remember one little boy I, treat, I was working with who, one of the, he was afraid that he was going to be kidnapped, and uh, he he was had some attentional issues, so he kind of would lose track of where he was and things. So he's afraid he'd get lost, and um, he had some separation concerns. And so one of the things we had him do was on Temple University's campus, we had him walk from the building we were at by himself to the library, and. After that, he, and he was afraid to do it, but we worked with him and we helped him figure out some coping strategies. We had ways to keep him safe. He walked. He did it. After that, he, that was his, his way of coping with other situations. Like, well, if I could do that, if I could walk to the library, then I can do this. 
So for some kids, they do have this where it kind of generalizes. But for other kids, what we have to do is we have to really kind of tackle each fear um, kind of in an individual way and, and create this learning experience. I think this is one thing that kind of differentiates um, the kind of treatment that we're doing, which it is a lot of different approaches together, but it also is strongly cognitive behavioral therapy in which there is this strong experiential component where we're actually going to have the child in the situation that's difficult for them and then, you know, implement these skills that we've been teaching them and working with them on so that they can actually have a different experience. And so, you know, we might have a child, we just had a child tonight I was working with who was um, taking tests and uh, because he became so anxious when he took tests, not because, of course, he had learning issues, and then he would take tests and he would feel like he didn't know the answer and it would be this cascade of negative thoughts about himself and very quick. And so we kind of figured out another way for him to approach it. He had a little coping card that he was working with things, but he had to have it right in front of him. And we would give him the test and he would take it and get anxious, but then we would have him kind of stick with it and stay with it and his anxiety would go down as he took the test and he tried different strategies. I've seen uh, uh, they talk about riding the, down the worry hill. Is that the concept you're kind of riding through those feelings of panic or dread, uh, riding down that hill? That's absolutely right. Um, the kids, we often talk about this, this kind of, we talk about anxiety. When you're in a situation that makes you kind of nervous, um, for example, if a, if a child has to go to a party or something, they may start feel anxious once they get there, but then as they stay in the anxiety-provoking situations, our bodies are set up so that they will actually usually go down over time. Um, and so one of the things that we do is we have kids try to be exposed to these situations if it's like an injection phobia or blood fears about kids who have to have medical procedures we may have them you know sort of be in that situation ride the anxiety up and realize kind of welcome say okay i know you <laughs> let's let you know i'm with you and then kind of write it down um with the idea of being in the situation and realizing they can tolerate it and that's so powerful for their sense of mastery and sense of i can do this um mm -hmm. it really opens up doors for them so how that's great. How how do you use the term comes up a lot? Methodology. You mentioned cognitive behavior therapy for parents out there that and others who don't really. Is there a nutshell way of explaining cognitive behavior therapy? Yeah, I could give it a try. <laughs> um, of course, have, it's um, everyone's experience yeah. coming into therapy is going to be a little different because you want it. To, you want to be with a therapist who's really going to look at your family and your child and really try to tailor it to you. Um, but cognitive behavioral therapy, usually um, it's, it's kind of a skill-based treatment where you're actually teaching children, first you're really carefully doing what they call a functional analysis. You're really looking at the particular problem areas as well as the child's strengths and the family and, your, and their school and your, their situations that they find difficulties in. For example, if they're avoiding taking tests or... So you're if, gathering... Um, Data, you're gathering data and information from a number of different sources, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah, and you're really, with cognitive behavioral therapy, you're really looking carefully at kind of the relationship between the person's responses and their environment, like their social environment, like how do people respond after they do something, as well as what the triggers are before the problem behavior. So, you know, a child may, if a teacher talks to them in a soft voice and sets them down with the test and gives them an encouraging smile, they may be able to hang on with it. 
They have another teacher who just puts the test down kind of loudly on their, their desk and walks away. They may flip out. Um, there might be different triggers. Um, then there's the behavior, and then we understand what happens afterwards. Like when they flip out, do they get to not have to take the test, or you know, do they leave the classroom? Um, what happens? Um, and and exactly. sometimes if something like what, good happens, yeah. of course, it's more likely to you know occur. Right. It's like what's Sorry, the Richard, payoff? Right. Yeah. What's the payoff basically? And sometimes it's to avoid something. And sometimes it's to get something. Um, and we all work that way. I know I myself am very much, I'm very sympathetic to this with the kids and the families I work with because we all kind of have this, this, this way of being in the world sometimes. So cognitive behavioral therapy really first does this functional analysis where we really look at those relationships. And then um, we try to teach skills to help the child self-soothe and, and deal with their emotions a little differently and also um, identify sort of different uh, thoughts and beliefs that they might have and how they might pop up automatically or be a belief that kind of that I have to be perfect or other people don't like me. And then we try to set up experiments or actual experiences in the world that challenge those assumptions and beliefs that are very helpful to the child um, and kind of develop different uh, ideas about themselves and about the world. Um, but we do it through these experiences. So for kids with anxiety, we may have experiences related to this kind of exposing them in this careful way to situations that make them worried and learn how to cope with them. Kids with anger problems, we may do something similar where we expose them to situations where they often get angry and triggered by anger, but then flip into using these new coping strategies in the actual situation and rewarding it and, and helping prompt it in a way that kind of supports it and practicing and practicing so that it becomes kind of a habit. Um, and um, for kids with attentional problems, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy might include a lot related to helping structure the environment so that the, the child is more motivated as well as has a lot of prompts to help them stay on task or stick with things that they may get disrupted by if, as their attention wanders, things like that. So in that regard, I would imagine back to the kids with attention problems or other learning problems, there, there's a strong parental component to the CBT work. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, especially with kids who have really difficult time with attention, they really, Barkley talks about the fact that some of these kids were kind of, just like if somebody was missing a leg, we'd have to provide them with a prosthetic. With these kids, if they're having some attentional issues, we have to provide them with a prosthetic or some way to help them, like a scaffolding, to help them be able to meet the demands of the world. So. Um, you know, we, they may need more uh, structure. They may need the parents to kind of in, uh, prompt them in different ways. They may need rewards immediately afterwards, those kinds of things. Um, they may need more encouragement or, or different kinds of situations. But, you know, it depends on the child and the parent. But um, that kind of environmental, they, you know, it's like kind of structuring the environment to support the child um, is going to be pretty important because, because of the attentional problems. They might have trouble holding all this stuff in their mind, and they may need more external prompts outside their world to kind of help them hold on to these messages or these coping strategies um, and remember to use them or remember why they're motivated for one reward versus another, um, you know, that it is, you know, worth it to kind of hang in with this homework for another minute or two versus, right. you know, running off <laughs> or trying to watch the TV or something like that. Do you find kids with with the ADHD with ADHD and learning disabilities 
getting sort of school stressed? And what, what, what role do you think the school plays? Like I have parents coming to me worried about the impact that, for example, the new common core state standards has, you know, this kind of like push to, um, you know, have kids earlier on meet certain standards across the board. Um, and many of these kids are not in a position to be able to manage what they're being asked to manage. Now, are you finding kids, I, I, my sense is their curriculum stressed. Are you finding kids like that? Absolutely. And um, it's not just the kids, it's the the parents yeah, who are right. very stressed. Um, uh, no, that's I was, exactly right. The parents are feeling really strung out about this for good reason. Yeah, I just, you know, I was just on the phone tonight with a parent who <clears throat> was really struggling with, um, you know, the child was anxious about making mistakes, so we were going to have her make some mistakes in her class, answer some questions wrong. And the parent was in a panic about it <laughs> because, oh, my gosh, then they might get a poor grade and then that will impact them and this this will happen and that. And, you know, it was really us sort of talking through how can we help the parent as well as the child deal with this anxiety about performance um, and what's expected. And um, uh, there is kind of, especially in this, area of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, some of these, you know, depending on the school district and things, but I think, I think there is these standards that these kids are expected to meet are, are, are pretty high, and if they have difficulties, I know there's good supports in many schools, but it's really just not enough. Um, so I think the parents and the kids are feeling particularly stressed, um, and we try to make a differentiation between kind of, if the environmental demands are too tough, we will try to work with those environmental demands. Um, you know, it, it, some kids, they're not getting challenged enough. Oh, they're anxious, don't make them do this. Oh, they're anxious, they don't have to give this talk. That might not be helpful to these kids. But for other kids, maybe it's too many demands, like you're talking about, where it's beyond their capabilities. And in that case, the answer is not just to help them cope. We also have to change some of these demands if we can um, to make it more likely they'll feel good about themselves and be able to succeed. So the environmental demands could be school or they could also be home. The, the, the home environment could be putting some of the demands on these kids as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Another family I was talking to last week was saying, we're stressed, you know, we've got these stressors at work and I just started a new job, the mom was saying, and then, you know, we have, I've got three kids and I've got to get dinner on the table and the homework and this and that. And I mean, it, they are feeling the effects of stress trying to meet their financial obligations, and then that, of course, gets communicated to the child as well, feeling a so sense you, of stress and, and needing to, to meet these demands. So you just want to say to everybody, everybody just calm down. Everybody just relax a little bit, right? Calm <laughs> down, everybody. I found myself using the word compassion a lot. Let's try to have some <laughs> compassion for ourselves, some compassion hey, some for compassion. her. You know, let's. <laughs> do, you, do you train a lot? Do you do a lot of deep breathing and more meditative mindfulness training, both for the parents and for kids as strategies? Um, I do like to utilize that. Um, it depends on the child. I kind of try to figure out what fits for different kids. Um, some kids, you know, real, really take to that. Um, and some don't, so you kind of have to play with with it a little bit. Um, but especially for adolescents, actually, that that has really been quite appealing to many adolescents more so maybe than the younger kids. Um, Although but the some might kids think it's like, weird too, right? Some some might yeah. think it's a little weird to close your eyes and deep breathe, things like that. They they I find some kids are resistant to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so you kind of got to work with the child about what 
how you know we could turn it into something that might work for them. For example, boys who might not want to do this, sometimes if we can look up their sports heroes and see that, oh, wow, they're using meditation or they're using these relaxation, yeah. visualization things before they go into the, the game, then that helps the kid be open to it. Um, so we try to kind of find ways to make it be appealing to them. But the parents, too, sometimes we're kind of – you know, suggesting and helping them learn some of these strategies too. Um, I remember one little boy I had who had a lot of attentional problems. I taught him relaxation and I thought, I don't think he heard a word I said as I'm telling him to, you know, tense his arms and, you know, squeeze the lemon and let the juice run out and feel the tension and then relax. And then, but I had, I said, okay, after we do this, I'm going to have you teach your mom. And the mom came in and darn it, that little boy didn't have it all. He was teaching her exactly what I said how to, because he had to teach her. So he picked it up, yeah. and he was actually much more, he really, came, and then because he repeated it in that way, he really started to get it, and he felt a sense of mastery and control that he was doing the teaching. And so those little things make all the difference in terms of. You know, maybe, he's, of maybe he's running a successful yoga, uh, you know, enterprise <laughs> right now. Maybe he's a yoga teacher. Is there a flip side to this where I'm thinking of, more the inattentive ADHD side where I get a lot of complaints where the child, in a sense, isn't anxious enough, you know, that they're not anxious. You know, we all need some anxiety. I think in, in society, anxiety gets a bit of a bad word. I know for me, I need some anxiety to, I, I have to, you know, like tonight, I was worried about making sure I was on time to meet with you over the phone um, or to get to work on time or to, to meet some deadlines. So we need some anxiety, right? Absolutely. There's there's a certain level of anxiety that's actually quite adaptive, and they talk about it being like a bell-shaped curve where, like, too little anxiety and we wouldn't be motivated to do anything or to take care of things we need to take care of too much. And, of course, we're, you know, have problems because we're overloaded and we can't handle things and our cog- we even get impaired in terms of cognitively. But in that middle realm, that's that's kind of kind of good to have a little anxiety sometimes. Right. Um, I mean, so, I, sometimes, um, I sometimes see moms – or moms, parents, usually it's the moms, who are, there, you know, the kids sort of sitting back and saying, oh, well, you know, you're so worried about getting the books. Why do I have to worry about it? You know, you're, you're, you're overly worried. You know, they don't actually say that, but that's kind of the message I pick up. Where So there's, it's almost like the parent is over-worrying and the kid then has, has not enough of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um we do see that, and we often will, depending on the age of the kid, what's appropriate, we might have the child try to take on more of those responsibilities and free up the parent a little bit sometimes with those situations. Like, for example, homework. The child might not be worried at all if they don't get things done right or if they finish things, or the parent right. is thinking about the long-term consequences and they're anxious about the child. They're stressed about the child, you know, doing their homework. Um, we also, it's, it's an interesting intervention sometimes I do, sometimes if I have a family where, like let's say the mom is very anxious but the dad seems very laid back if we have the mom kind of give up having to be responsible for certain things and suddenly the dad is all of a sudden the dad starts to be much more anxious and the mom can be much more relaxed yeah i've so noticed sometimes my own it's house. not just this is an anxious mom or an anxious dad right. sometimes it's like the structure of the family is set up so that one person kind of holds it in the family um someone's over functioning someone's under functioning right yeah yeah so, so I noticed some of these my own house. Does it happen in your own house? Is that what you're saying? I won't say which direction it's going in my house. I'll leave that <laughs> out. Um, 
in, in, in a, we're, we're starting to wind down a little bit. Um, are there top tips you might give parents? I, you know, I know recognizing that every family is different, every situation is different, but are there certain strategies that you would say, okay, look, here are the top hits for addressing anxiety, particularly in the kids who are struggling in school? What are some, what are some top pieces of advice for parents and, and teachers? Well, right. Well, one of the pieces is for the parent to be as, as calm as they can. And so if they need help with their own stress level to get it for, to get it and to try to help themselves deal with it in a calm way versus getting very angry or upset, um, which sometimes it can be frustrating when your child's in pain and you can't help them because they're so anxious. It is very stressful as a parent. So it's not unusual for parents to get frustrated and, and very upset or very anxious for their kids. So, um, but that's one of the first places to start is actually attending to your own level of how high is your arousal level when you're interacting with your kids around this stuff and get some strategies to try to decrease that. The, the, for the kids, I think one of the pro, one of the biggest things we see is that the kids are avoiding, as I talked about, this avoidance where they'll kind of subtly or very obviously just avoid dealing with things that make them anxious or coming in contact with them. And we're not really doing them favors. You know, if we have a child, for example, we'll have kids with, let's say, dog phobias, and the parents are doing everything they can so that the kid never has to come in contact with a the dog. They walk to the other side of the street. Parents are always hypervigilant, making sure there's no dogs around, um, won't take them places, doesn't make them go places if there might be a dog there. You know, all these things to kind of help the child feel more comfortable but actually are not helpful. They proliferate the avoidance. What's much better is to try to figure out ways to kind of help the child engage maybe in a, in a gradual way but in a slow way, maybe with some help, in actually still trying to engage in these situations and, and engage and not avoid. That's, that's one of the most critical pieces. You can't just throw it all on the child and suddenly say, okay, now you have to do everything and slam them with it. That doesn't help. But in, in, a, in a thoughtful way, helping the child remain engaged and, and uh, you know, as much as they can to do things at, like the other kids are doing or to try to at least attempt in some way to engage and not avoid is really pretty critical because then the child can have a sense of self-efficacy and um, that makes all the difference for them. How about the classroom? How about in, we have just a couple more minutes, How classroom strategies for teachers to be thinking about? Um, yeah, I think I think the avoidance piece also works in classrooms in terms of the teacher sort of thinking, how can I sort of... Um, you know, have the child stay with this a little bit, maybe in smaller, you know, break down the task and maybe have them do a little piece of it and have some success and then make it larger, but keeping them so they're engaging in it and rewarding them for their successes and for trying to engage and not to avoid, um, I think can go a long way for teachers um, when they're working with Yeah, I would think I would really support that, trying to find those small behaviors or just catching the child doing the right thing or you know, just noticing when something positive is happening, that little bit of something, wow, you did a great job today on, on you know, helping carry the books. Well, little things could, could go a long way. Absolutely. It could even be like, wow, I really loved the way, like a kid who's socially anxious, well, it was so nice when you, look, you know, looked at me today and smiled or, um, you know, that kind of thing, giving them an opportunity for the child to engage with you and letting them know that you enjoy talking with them or um, we, we need those to, kinds of we, things. 
we need the 21st century version of the eraser monitor. Back in the day when I went to school, the log cabin or there were eraser monitors went out and cleaned the erasers. And even if you were incompetent in school, you could clean your, throw the erasers against the wall and come back going, wow, you're really good at throwing those erasers against the wall. <laughs> really? I'm so good at that? Wow. You know, get a sense of self-esteem from that. Um, yeah, and there, that, and that, that's you know one of the pro, one of the difficulties. We did a study um, recently with one of our graduate students in which we looked at kids' self competency across different areas, like how they felt about their bodies, how they felt about their academics, how they felt socially, sports, and what we found with kids with attentional problems or with learning disabilities is they didn't just feel like oh I have academic problems. They tended to generalize some of that across some of these other areas. So, but there are ways if they are struggling in some areas you know, certainly help them to be as successful as they can in those areas, but also to find other ways and to kind of, you know, proactively work to help them feel more competent in those other areas can be really helpful. Well, I knew that you would be a wonderful guest, so I'm going to have you on in the future because you're a font, you're a wealth of information as I, as I knew you would be. But I, so I want to really thank you. Can you tell us, um, uh, you know, how to get a hold of you or the clinics that you mentioned before? Sure. Um, you know, people certainly through the Internet, um, you can um, look up the Temple Child Anxiety, Temple Child and Adolescent Anxiety Clinic. And um, the phone number Temple there. Temple University, you mean, right? Temple, it's Temple University, Temple University, sorry. Not, not like yeah. a religious temple, sorry. Yeah, not like a <laughs> temple of a, learning. Uh, anxiety treatment center. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, the Child and Adolescent Anxiety Disorders Clinic um, at Temple University. And um, the phone number there is um, 215-204-7165. That's 215-204-7165. And then... Um, the Center for Brief Therapy um, can also be found on the Internet, and that's at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, both of these places are in Philadelphia. They both have sliding scale fees, and there's also some research studies going on at both places so that sometimes your child could be part of a trial if you were interested, um, but it doesn't have to be because there's also outpatient clinics. And we have some really great therapists there, and I, I would just encourage parents you know, we are not in the business of trying to make money off this. We are really in the business of trying to help um, these kids feel more comfortable. And so if, if you have any concerns, don't hesitate. Bring your child in. Sometimes a few sessions can make such a difference for a young child to help them cope with these situations. Um, parents always feel like the stigma or the money or the, they have a lot of concerns. But even just to come in once, you know, no one's going to make you come in again, but at least you can see if it could be helpful to your child or not. So I'd really encourage parents to take that step if they have concerns about their child's anxiety. These kids tend to suffer in silence, um, maybe not about other things, but they can – they can really have some significant anxiety, and this can really make a difference for them. We've, we really I, have I, a treatment that has a lot of success, so I think it's something for parents to think about. I endorse that wholeheartedly. I think I'm coming in myself before the next show next month. <laughs> so I'll be glad to talk with you again next time before um, you have to turn sure, on all the equipment. Yeah, right, exactly. Be sure, folks, to visit uh, www.thecoffeeclotch, that's the coffee, T-H-E-C-O-F-F-E-E, clotch, K-L-A-T-C-H dot com, to listen to the whole host or a range of hosts on a variety of child topics. And remember to support our sponsor, Mayor Johnson, that's M-A-Y-E-R, um, this, your special education super source at www.mayorjohnson.com. 
And I invite you to visit my website, which is www.shutdownlearner, that's one word, shutdownlearner.com, to learn more about school struggles and shutdown learners. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sells, that's D-R-S-E-L-Z, and on Facebook under Shutdown Learner. So thank you again, Dr. Gosh. You are wonderful, and I look forward to seeing you soon and your darling husband. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk. Thank you, folks, and good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Rich. Good night. Good night, Liz.